Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst Glenn Kirshner. This time in our long-form weekend podcast, Glenn gives us an update on the Trump trials. First up, he talks about what he saw from the inside of the federal courtroom at Trump's status hearing for trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Welcome to the weekend edition of Justice Matters. On the weekends, we try to air things out a bit. We try to do a deeper dive into what can only be described as our insane legal landscape. And today, we're going to take on everything that's been unfolding, often at light speed, down in Georgia, in connection with District Attorney Fonnie Willis's RICO prosecution of 19 co-defendants, including characters like Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, Sidney Powell, John Eastman, Jeffrey Clark, Kenneth Cheesebro, and a great big supporting cast of fake electors. It kind of sounds like the worst off-Broadway play ever. Donnie and the fake electors. You know, there have been so many developments, and some of them are admittedly pretty confusing. Whether you're talking about people who are filing motions to have their state court prosecutions transferred to federal court, whether it's some of the defendants demanding a speedy trial, and other defendants fighting like all get out to avoid a speedy trial, whether it's some defendants filing what are called motions to sever. In English, that is like a defendant saying, hey, judge, please get me out of this big co-defendant case. I want to be tried by myself. You know, there is so dang much going on, and we're going to try to break it all down. But before we discuss the status of the Georgia RICO case, we really do have to take on the biggest development of the week, and that is Donald Trump will be going to trial in federal court in Washington, D.C. for his attempt to steal the 2020 presidential election, for his attempt to corruptly overturn the results of Joe Biden's win, for his decision to order his foot soldiers to attack the Capitol on January 6th in his attempt to unconstitutionally retain the power of the presidency. He will be going to trial for all of that beginning on March 4th, 2024, because Judge Tanya Chutkin, after a hearing, a hearing that I attended, set the trial date for March 4th, 2024, 
And friends, I want to start with what I saw in that court hearing. Donald Trump's lead criminal defense attorney, this John Lauro guy, started out loud and he only got louder over the course of the hearing. You know, he was throwing red meat to Donald Trump's base, engaging in all sorts of stupidity, like yelling about how this is a political prosecution, this is a grave injustice, I've never seen anything, blah, 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 none of which was true, none of which was accurate, and none of which had anything to do with the nature of the court hearing that was being conducted. You know, friends, there were times when Laura was so loud, so combative, and I would argue at times disrespectful, that Judge Chutkin not once but twice told him to, quote, take the temperature down, close quote. You know, I spent 30 years in courtrooms as a prosecutor, military and civilian courtrooms, federal and local courtrooms, trial and appellate courtrooms. And in my opinion and experience, you know, John Loro's behavior was unbefitting of an honorable criminal litigator. Okay, now that we got Loro's poor form out of the way, let's talk about his poor substance, the substance of his lawyering. Now, as you may know, going into that hearing on Tuesday, Jack Smith and his team of federal prosecutors had proposed a January 2nd, 2024 trial date for Trump. Lauro had proposed an April 2026 trial date, two and a half to three years down the road. That's absurd. You know, that's not Lauro acting like a responsible lawyer for his client. It's like Lauro acting like an assistant campaign manager for his client, Donald Trump. And Judge Chutkin said a number of times during the hearing, uh, the case is not going to trial in 2026. But there's something else that the judge said very early on in the hearing. She said that in her estimation, neither the trial date proposed by the prosecutors, January 2nd, 2024, nor the trial date proposed by the defense, April 2026, are appropriate. And when I heard her say that, I have to be honest, I thought, you know, maybe we were going to get some kind of a Solomonic splitting of the difference. But then as the hearing progressed, Judge Chutkin kept asking John Lauro, give me a reasonable alternative proposed trial date because April 2026 is not reasonable. It's not realistic. It's not gonna happen. And John Lauro would not give her an alternative proposed trial date. He wouldn't back off that absurd trial date by one month or one week or one day. I call that poor lawyering. Now, I suspect his client, Donald Trump, said you will not back off that proposed trial date by even one minute. But friends, there are times when a lawyer needs to do what's right and what's reasonable and what's responsible, not just what an unreasonable client demands. 
But Laura would not answer the judge's question. He would not give a reasonable alternative proposed trial date, and he suffered the consequences. Poor lawyers often do. And the judge at the end of the hearing said, okay, fine, then I will be setting this trial date for March 4th, 2024. Now granted, that is two months later than Jack Smith had asked her to set the trial date, but it's 25 months earlier than Donald Trump, through his mouthpiece, John Loro, had asked her to set the trial date. So chalk that up as a great big loss for Donald Trump. And as if all that wasn't bad enough, at the very end of the hearing, John Loro then threw a tantrum. Every single case that's set for trial involves a series of what are called status hearings in the run-up to the trial, right? Periodic hearings are held where the judge, you know, hears motions, conducts evidentiary hearings on those motions, issues rulings on those motions, takes care of any number of other matters in a series of status hearings. That's the norm. So not surprisingly, after Judge Chutkin set the trial date, she turned to the defense attorney and said, Mr. Lauro, will you please propose a status hearing date, a date that works for your schedule? And he said, I don't see the point of a status hearing. That's childish. That's a tantrum. And Judge Chutkin was perfectly dismissive of Lauro's tantrum, saying, oh, fine, then I will just set the date for the next status hearing, and you'll see it in my minute order. Anything else? No, parties dismissed. So a minute order is this kind of informal order that the judge publishes on the public docket, and it will just say the next status hearing is scheduled for such and such a date. That's how Judge Chutkin handled Lauro's tantrum. But friends, if what we saw in court on Tuesday is any indication of the kind of lawyering we can expect come trial time, then Donald Trump's situation just got appreciably worse, if that's even possible. And frankly, it may not be possible because the evidence against Donald Trump in his federal prosecution for his January 6th related crimes is overwhelming. I have maintained all along that once we get into trial proper. The prosecutors are standing in the well of the court, arguing the case to 12 citizens sitting in the jury box as the conscience of the community, assessing the evidence against Donald Trump, not the disinformation, not the propaganda, not the lies, not the posts that Donald Trump spews into the public square all day, every day. You know, when the admissible evidence is presented to a jury in a court of law, Donald Trump will be convicted so fast it will make his head spin. And accountability will be delivered by a DC jury in early to mid 2024 when Donald Trump's trial concludes. And that's a good thing. 
because justice matters. On the way, Glenn has an update on D.A. Fonnie Willis's RICO prosecution of Trump and Company in Fulton County, Georgia. This is Justice Matters. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. In the Georgia RICO prosecution, some defendants are asking for speedy trials, and former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is attempting to get his case transferred from state court to federal court. Glenn explains how this will play out. Okay, friends, let's head on down to Georgia. And I have to admit it's hard for me not to burst into an edited version of the Charlie Daniels band hit. Devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for some votes to steal. He was in a bind because Trump was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. Okay, yes, I listened to lots of FM radio back in the day and before that, AM radio. You know, 66 or 77 on your radio dial. Those were the two New York metropolitan area stations that we used to listen to WABC and WNBC. Yes, I grew up in the backseat of my pop's Chevy Corvair, which probably was unsafe at any speed, but boy, we used to crank up that AM radio, and I am still a a music junkie to this day. Give me those hits from the late 60s and the 70s, and I'm a happy kid from Jersey, but I digress. Okay, let's head on down to Georgia and talk about District Attorney Fonnie Willis's case, her RICO case against Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants. So much has been going on in that mega RICO case. Let's just take on some of the highlights. So first of all, I have a feeling we're going to be talking about this case for literally years to come. Once Donald Trump was arrested and his mugshot was taken, his tiny little fingers were fingerprinted. Then we kind of moved on to the all-important question of a trial date, or trial dates, plural, in the Georgia state case. And now some of the dust has been settling, at least for some of the co-defendants, although, you know, once some of the dust settles, more dust gets kicked up by other co-defendants filing motions, but let's just take stock of where we are at this moment. So we have one trial date set, 
October 23rd, this coming October, right? October 2023, for the architect of the fake elector scheme, and that is a sad little attorney named Kenneth Cheesebro. The Cheese is demanding a speedy trial, and I'll spare you all the ins and outs of Georgia state law, but essentially that means that he has to go to trial by the end of October, or at least the trial needs to begin, and jury selection needs to be conducted by the end of October, and so the presiding judge, Judge McAfee, ordered a trial date, granted the cheese's motion for a speedy trial, and his trial will begin on October 23rd. And another defendant has also filed a motion for a speedy trial. That would be Sidney Catherine Powell, not Sidney Kraken Powell, but you know, she's the one who said that she will release the Kraken on all of this non-existent election fraud. So I'm sorry, but she essentially gave herself the nickname, the Kraken. So maybe it's worth observing that the two defendants who have demanded a speedy trial, the two defendants who may be going to trial together in October will be something of a cheese and Kraken affair. Thank you, friends. I'll be here all week. Two drink minimum. Well, unless you're another co-defendant, Rudy Giuliani, then it's maybe a three drink minimum. But anyway, let me get back on track. Sidney Powell also filed a demand for a speedy trial. So she will probably be joined together, batched together with Kenneth Cheesebro for his October trial date. Now, the other defendants have not yet demanded a speedy trial. Some of them have said, you know, to the contrary, the last thing I want is a speedy trial. So some of the defendants may end up waiving their right to a speedy trial. And in the last segment today of our Justice Matters discussion, I'm gonna go through some of the pros and cons of the following circumstances. When you have a big co-defendant case, 19 co-defendants, that kind of a case will probably be broken up into a series of smaller trials. Defendants will be batched together. Maybe five, six, seven defendants will be part of trial one, then another five, six, or seven will be part of trial two, and then the remaining defendants in trial three. We don't know precisely how it will play out, but what I can tell you is when I was trying RICO cases in Washington, D.C., that's what ended up happening when we would indict these large conspiracy cases, lots of co-conspirators, we would end up batching them together and doing a series of trials. So what I'm going to do at the end of today's discussion is talk about the pros and cons of being in that first batch of defendants to go to trial, being part of the second trial or a subsequent trial, because there are definitely pros and cons. And if you'll indulge me, what I want to do near the end of today's chat is read a piece about that that I wrote. Uh, just went up on MSNBC Daily's website. I'm, I'm one of their authors. And hopefully that will kind of explain the tactical benefits and detriments to being in the first trial versus being in the second or subsequent trial. But as of right now, 
you know, th this, this is going to change probably as more motions are filed by more co-defendants. But as of right now, it looks like Cheesebro and Powell are the two who will be going to trial first, at least two who will be going to trial in October. Okay, let's turn to Mark Meadows, right? Former chief of staff to Donald Trump. This is another really curious twist in the RICO case. Mark Meadows, because he was a federal officer at the time he was committing these crimes, filed a motion. He filed a motion to have his trial transferred from state court to federal court. Now, that doesn't really sound like it should be a thing, right? If you violated state law, you're being prosecuted by state court prosecutors, well, your case ought to be in state court. Well, here's the thing. It actually is a thing. There actually is this procedure for somebody to try to transfer their case from state court to federal court. If you're a federal officer at the time of the alleged crimes and you are acting within the scope of your official duties as a federal officer, then you can file what's called a removal motion. You can have the case removed from state court and handled in federal court. I know this all sounds kind of curious, but stick with me here for a minute. If it happens, if Mark Meadows gets his case transferred to federal court, it does not make the case a federal prosecution. It's still a state court prosecution. It just will be handled in federal court, but it's still in violation of state law. It is still prosecuted by state court prosecutors. And most importantly, friends, and this is the main takeaway, this is the whole enchilada from a justice perspective, if Mark Meadows' case gets transferred to federal court and he's convicted, which he almost certainly will be, a president cannot issue a pardon for that kind of conviction. When somebody's case gets transferred or removed from state court to federal court, it is still beyond the reach of a presidential pardon. And that is the good news on the accountability and justice front. So why is Meadows trying to get his case transferred? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, if his case is tried in federal court, the potential jury pool that will be assembled for that trial will probably be somewhat more favorable than the jury pool that is assembled if he's tried in Fulton County in the local state court, the local state jurisdiction. And, you know, in federal court, there may be a larger jury pool pulling from a more diverse population politically, ideologically, and it may end up being a more favorable jury pool, but that doesn't concern me, not one bit, because I continue to have faith in the jury system, and we'll be talking about that as we get closer to some of these jury trials. But the other thing is, if he can get his case transferred to federal court, he will have some additional opportunity to make a legal argument to the federal court judge who will preside that, look, everything I did to, yes, try to undermine the Georgia election results, it was all within the scope of my official duties 
as chief of staff, as a federal officer. Therefore, federal court judge, you should dismiss the case against me because I was acting in accordance with my job, my federal job. He'll have a greater opportunity to make that legal argument in federal court if his case gets transferred, but friends, it's still a losing argument in my opinion because everything he did was not within the scope of his official duties. In fact, the overwhelming majority of what Meadows did was not within the scope of his official duties as chief of staff. Because if it had been, do you know what his transfer hearing would have looked like? His transfer hearing was conducted this past week and he testified. Do you know what that hearing would have looked like? He would have called two or three or five other chiefs of staff as his witnesses to testify that we did it all the time. This is exactly what a chief of staff to the president is supposed to do, stick our nose into state elections and try to get the results overturned so we could keep our boss in power. It sounds stupid even as I'm saying it, right? Why? Because we all know intuitively, logically, that's not within the scope of the official duties of a chief of staff to the president. And no other chief of staff came into court and contradicted that, said that, yes, that was part of our official duties. So friends, Mark Meadows will go to trial. I don't believe for a minute his case will be dismissed. He will go to trial either in state court or if they grant his motion to transfer in federal court. And based on the evidence, Mark Meadows will be convicted in my opinion. And here's one other thing, friends. In his transfer hearing in federal court, Mark Meadows testified for like four or five hours, and I'm not going to go through chapter and verse what he said, but some of the things he said are contradicted by his own emails and text messages. I mean, it's absurd. He's handing these gifts of incriminating evidence and what we call impeachment evidence to the Georgia prosecutors who will be prosecuting Mark Meadows' case. So as far as I'm concerned, Mark, you go ahead, you keep running your mouth because you are just digging your legal hole deeper and deeper and deeper. Coming up after the break, things just keep getting worse for Rudy Giuliani. Glenn talks about his troubles next on Justice Matters. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Jack Smith has been investigating Rudy Giuliani's drinking, and a judge finds him liable for lying about Georgia state election workers, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. Glenn says these two facts will be important in the trials ahead. Okay, friends, before I turn to the pros and cons of being the first in a RICO case to go to trial rather than the second or the third, I want to touch on one more story. Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani was in the news not once but twice this week. He was first in the news because we learned, we heard reports that Special Counsel Jack Smith and his team of federal prosecutors have been investigating Rudy Giuliani's drinking. I know, it sounds like I'm setting up a punchline, but I'm not. There were reports that witnesses have been asked about Rudy Giuliani's drinking, his intoxication, his inebriation, at times that were relevant to the efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Why? Well, because Donald Trump, in part, may try to say, I was just following my lawyer's advice when I did everything I did. My lawyers told me it was okay to do it. Now, of course, it looks like it may have been incompetent lawyers he was listening to, or drunk lawyers, or nefarious lawyers who were telling Donald Trump to try to overturn the election's results. And remember during the January 6th House Select Committee hearings, we heard testimony about Team Crazy and Team Normal, two teams of lawyers. Team Normal were the responsible, sober, professional, ethical lawyers giving Donald Trump advice based on the law and the Constitution, like, no, you can't overturn the results of a presidential election and try to cling to power. Now, Team Normal included people like White House Counsel Pat Cipollone, Deputy White House Counsel Patrick Philbin, lawyer Eric Hirschman, and others, responsible lawyers, ethical lawyers, sober lawyers, you know, lawyers that cared about the rule of law and the Constitution. And then there was Team Crazy. That's not my label. That's how they were referred to during the January 6th House Select Committee hearings by witnesses who were testifying, including some of the lawyers. Team Crazy versus Team Normal. Team Normal versus Team Crazy. And I guess maybe it should be Team Drunken Crazy when you got Rudy on the team. Because there's evidence that Rudy Giuliani was drunk when he was giving Donald Trump legal advice. I use the word legal very loosely. Sometimes he was giving him illegal advice. But, you know, some of the advice he's giving Donald Trump on election night, you know, and then others on Team Crazy, you know, Sidney Powell and John Eastman. And then there's this corrupt DOJ lawyer named Jeffrey Clark. These are the people on Team Crazy. So Rudy's intoxication becomes relevant if Donald Trump tries to use what's called an advice of counsel defense. I was just following the advice of my lawyers. Well, 
If your lawyers are members of Team Crazy and the lead crazy lawyer is Rudy Giuliani and he's drunk, you know, that is not the most compelling defense. But let me add, there is actually a more fundamental problem, in my opinion, with Donald Trump offering what's called the advice of counsel defense. The advice of counsel defense is actually a thing in the law. Let me give you a routine example. I'm filling out my taxes and my tax lawyer says, Glenn, you can take that deduction. So I take that deduction and it turns out I couldn't take that deduction because it violated tax laws. What do I do? I offer an advice of counsel defense. I said, my tax attorney told me it was appropriate. It was lawful to take that deduction. So an advice of counsel defense can be a viable, even convincing legal defense. But you know what's not a viable defense to a crime? An advice of co-conspirator defense. If your counsel happens to be your co-conspirator in a criminal endeavor or a criminal enterprise or a criminal undertaking, you can't raise an advice of counsel defense because there's no such thing as an advice of co-conspirator defense, an advice of criminal associate defense. And some of Donald Trump's lawyers who were on Team Crazy are his co-conspirators. They're his partners in crime, like Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, Sidney Powell, and others. And don't take it from me that they're Donald Trump's criminal associates, his partners in crime, his co-conspirators. They're actually indicted. They're charged co-defendants and co-conspirators in the Georgia RICO case, and they are unindicted co-conspirators at the moment in the D.C. federal prosecution of Donald Trump. So, you know, advice of counsel may work, but advice of co-conspirator? That dog ain't gonna hunt, drunk or sober. So no, you can't rely on the advice of Rudy Giuliani and claim it's a defense to your crimes, Donald. Here's the other story from the past week involving Rudy Giuliani. Rudy is libel. Libel for lying about and defaming two Georgia state election workers, Shamos and Ruby Freeman. You remember those were the two African-American women that Rudy said looked like drug dealers when they were stuffing ballot boxes. Well, they were neither stuffing ballot boxes, nor were they drug dealers, and that is nothing more than racist bullshit coming out of Rudy Giuliani's mouth. Please excuse my language. And a judge ruled. A judge found that Rudy Giuliani lied about and defamed Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. And all that's left is for a jury to decide how much Rudy will have to pay in damages, in compensatory damages and in punitive damages. Punitive damages are damages, money, 
that he'll have to pay that is designed to punish these kinds of lies, this kind of defamation by Rudy Giuliani. And it's no surprise he was found liable by the judge. Rudy admitted in a court filing, in writing, in a document in that lawsuit that he lied about Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman and that he defamed Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. So it's not surprising that the judge made the finding that he lied about and defamed those two women. And here's the fun part about the fact that Rudy Giuliani made those admissions in a court filing in writing. It will be used against him in his Georgia RICO prosecution because part of the basis of the charges against Rudy in the Georgia case are that he engaged in election lies. So thank you, Rudy, for admitting in writing in a court filing that you did precisely that. All things considered, friends, it was a pretty good week on the accountability front. Just ahead, Glenn explains the good and the bad about being the first of the Georgia defendants to go to trial. This is Justice Matters. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Glenn has written an MSNBC opinion piece on the pros and cons of being among the first defendants to go on trial in the Georgia election interference case. He says all eyes will be on this first trial on October 23rd. Now, as promised, let's turn briefly to the pros and cons of being a RICO defendant who gets tried first or being a RICO defendant who gets tried second. So friends, the title of my piece is Why Some of Trump's Co-Defendants Are Eager to Be Tried Before He Is. Former President Donald Trump stands indicted in Georgia State Court in a case with 19 defendants for his alleged efforts to subvert the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Trump has made it clear that he doesn't want a speedy trial in any of the four cases in which he's criminally charged, but some of his co-defendants in Georgia seem to be champing at the bit to get to trial as soon as possible. And Thursday, after there were no objections from Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee set an October 23rd trial date for defendant Kenneth Cheesebro, an attorney, 
if that first Georgia trial begins in just two months without Trump himself as one of the defendants on trial, it could spell real trouble for Trump, at least in the court of public opinion. In addition to Cheesebro, another attorney, Sidney Powell, has also demanded a speedy trial. Judge McAfee is likely to add Powell to the same October 23rd trial date, together with any other co-defendants who make speedy trial demands. In a motion Tuesday, Willis said, the state maintains its position that severance is improper at this junction and that all defendants should be tried together. In large conspiracy cases, it's entirely usual to batch defendants together and try them in a series of cases. For example, as a federal prosecutor, I was involved in a large-scale RICO case in Washington, D.C., in which more than two dozen defendants were indicted. After all but 13 pleaded guilty, we batched the defendants together into three trials. Six defendants in the first trial, six in the second, and the last defendant in a third trial. Two things tend to happen when you prosecute co-conspirators in a series of separate trials, one of which could hurt Trump, but the second could actually help him. When Cheesebro and Powell go to trial, their defense attorneys undoubtedly will attack every piece of evidence that tends to incriminate them. But if Trump's not part of that first trial, their attorneys may choose not to challenge any of the evidence that incriminates Trump or other alleged co-conspirators. In fact, their attorneys may even embrace and highlight to the jury the evidence that incriminates, say, Trump and Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, and others. It's called the empty chair defense, and it can be extremely damaging in the court of public opinion, even if it isn't all that impactful in a court of law in future trials. Of course, because Georgia allows cameras in the courtroom, this trial could give the viewing public the first chance to see the evidence prosecutors have. That's why the first trial could have such a significant impact on public opinion. Attorneys for Cheesebro and Powell may argue that Trump Giuliani, Eastman, and others are the real bad actors. It's easy to imagine an argument from them that their clients were just carrying out the expressed desires of Trump and that he is the one who ultimately bears responsibility for anything that may have crossed legal lines. More directly, Cheesebro may try to portray Eastman as the true architect of the alternate elector theory. He may contend that he was just following the advice and guidance of Eastman, a constitutional scholar who was then a professor at the Chapman University Fowler School of Law, and that Eastman assured him that the alternate elector theory was on sound legal footing and that he had every reason to believe him. Simultaneously, Sidney Powell's lawyers may argue that Giuliani assured Powell that he had uncovered lots of evidence of actual fraud in the 2020 election and that she was just foolish enough to believe him, but that it's Giuliani 
who should be held accountable, not her. Of course, in what would be bad news for the former president, both defense teams could choose to argue that the single most blameworthy culprit, the Svengali, who ensnared us all in his web of corruption, is Donald Trump. Now, friends, I have seen such empty chair arguments resonate with jurors. Now, on the other side of the coin, going second or even later in a series of trials provides significant benefits to those defendants. If Cheesebro and Powell go first, I can pretty much guarantee that defense attorneys for the 17 other co-defendants will attend every day of the trial. They'll get a bird's eye view of the state's evidence. They'll hear the testimony of the witnesses. They'll see each piece of documentary evidence and make note of how prosecutors weave the story together for the jury. Thus, they will be better prepared to defend their clients. Not going first also provides opportunities to impeach witnesses who've testified in previous trials. If a witness is asked to tell a story in the form of testimony at trial, and then that same witness is asked to tell the story again, six months or a year later, the story will be somewhat different. That's human nature. Witnesses may choose different words or they may forget things. When that inevitably happens, the defense attorneys will highlight the inconsistencies and ask some version of, were you lying then or are you lying now? Which technically is an objectionable question. To be sure, prosecutors have ways to deal with such challenges, but when a series of trials leads to witnesses having to testify multiple times about the same facts, in my experience, that tends to favor the defense more than the prosecution. If the October trial date holds, we will soon see whether Trump's decision to let others test the strength and the quality of Willis's evidence works to his advantage or his disadvantage in the courtroom and in the court of public opinion. So friends, I think I'm gonna stop there. We have covered a lot of legal terrain and we will have so much more to cover in the coming weeks, the coming months, and dare I say, in the coming years, but we'll be here for all of it. You know why we'll be here for all of it? You know why. Because justice matters. Friends, if you wanna know where else you can find me, you can find me on the social media platforms the Twitters and the Facebooks and the Instagrams at Glenn Kirshner 2, my name and the number two. My daily legal analysis videos are on my YouTube channel, Justice Matters with Glenn Kirshner. If you'd like to more formally support what we do here, our all volunteer efforts, our mission, our content, please feel free to come on over to patreon.com. If you sign up to become a patron and support our efforts, I will send you some Team Justice and Justice Matters stickers and a personal handwritten note of thanks. Uh, a couple of other quick announcements. I will be presenting at CrimeCon this year. For the first time, I was invited to talk about two things. One, 
a documentary that I have that is up on Peacock streaming at the moment. I think it's available on Oxygen as well. It's called Who Killed Robert Juan? It's a two-part documentary, and it is the most confounding murder case I ever handled. I'll be presenting on that documentary, and I'll also be presenting on legislation, federal legislation that I worked on. It's called the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act. It was signed into law a year ago now, and it gives the families of murder victims, people who have had their loved ones taken from them by violent crime, it gives them a statutory right to demand a review and even a reinvestigation of their loved one's murder case once the case grows cold. And I'm so excited at the prospect of being part of a process that hopefully will move some of these investigations forward. So I'll also be presenting at CrimeCon on the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act. CrimeCon is going to be down in Orlando, Florida the weekend of September 22nd, September 23rd. I can't wait to meet lots of folks who will be attending. And then the other thing that you may not have heard yet, this is a little bit of an outlier, but I was asked to host a Mediterranean cruise. I'm not making this up, friends. You may know Frank Figluzzi. He is a retired FBI agent. He is an MSNBC legal analyst. He is really a master of all things law enforcement and FBI. He's been a really important and valuable resource for me and I know for all of you as we continue to navigate this insane legal landscape on which we find ourselves. And so Frank and I jointly will be hosting, yes, a cruise, a Mediterranean cruise next July, a year down the road. So if you are interested in that, please feel free to go over either to my website or you will find information on Twitter or over on Patreon and you can learn more and see whether you're interested in, you know, what we're kind of calling a justice-centric, democracy-centric, rule-of-law-centric, accountability-centric cruise that will be hosted by Frank and I. We'll have events, cocktail hours, Q&As, and uh, I can't wait because the more opportunity I get, to spend time with, talk with, discuss the legal landscape with people who care about the rule of law and democracy and ethics in government and accountability for the crimes of high government officials, the more I enjoy it. So I know that's a lot of information, friends, but I appreciate you sticking with me for today's long form audio podcast. As always, friends, please stay safe. Please stay tuned, and I look forward to talking with you all again soon.